Oh, Lord, you're our portion. We promise to obey your words. We seek your face with all of our hearts. Please be gracious to us according to your promises. We consider our ways and turn our steps to you, your precepts. We will hasten and not delay to follow your commands. Though the wicked bind us with ropes, we will not forget your word. At midnight, we will rise to give you thanks for your righteous guidance. We hold all as friends who fear you and follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love, O Lord. Teach us your decrees. Help us to hear your word this morning and apply its truths to our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The gospel is called good news. It's called good news because it offers hope to an otherwise hopeless people. It's hard for men to see themselves as hopeless. We don't like to think of ourselves as worthless. We think we're pretty good people. In fact, those people we see as worthless are rejected from polite society. If we all are all good people, then what could this gospel offer that we would see as good news? Does it tell us how good we really are? Does it show us our great worth before God? What is this good news we should all be expected to hear? Now, I have to confess to you, I cannot find any good news in the gospel when I start looking for it with the idea of my own worth. If I am, if I am of infinite value before God, and he's searching for worth in people, then it is his obligation to do for me what I need. If that is true, why do I need the gospel? God, by virtue of his very character, must be true to himself. Therefore, he must accept me. If he really accepts me, was I ever really in any trouble before him to start with? The only way the gospel, is, as good news, makes any sense at all is when we see ourselves lost and without hope. When we recognize that we have sinned, we have fallen far short of God's glory, hope can be a very, very fragile thing. If you are on a ship crossing the ocean and you fall overboard, what happens to your hope? The hope of rescue grows dimmer with each passing minute you're in the water. If no one saw you fall overboard, then it will be some time until they realize you aren't on the ship and they begin to search for you. It's very difficult to see something as small as a human head bobbing on an ocean. So your hope of rescue, once that ship is out of sight, is even smaller. Can you be even begin to imagine the total helplessness, the whole feeling of helplessness that you would have? Yet, how great is the hopelessness of the man who has rebelled against God? The good news of the gospel is that even though you are lost in this great sea of sin and have no hope of yourself, the one who comes to rescue you always knows where you are. Isn't that a most wonderful thought? God has sent Jesus Christ. He sent him into this world to do for you what you could never do for yourself. To rescue you from this great sea of sin and to be your life preserver. 
take hold of your hand and draw you to safety. Jesus says in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. In John 14, 6, he says, No one comes to the Father except through me. Is this a contradiction? No, it's not. You are lost in your trespasses and sins. God the Father chose you to be saved. He rescues you from this sea of sin and draws you to Christ. Jesus takes hold of you and raises you from the sea, bringing you to the Father. You cannot be saved if the Father and Son do not come to you. You cannot come to the Father unless Jesus takes hold of you and brings you to the Father. This is good news. This is the good news of the gospel. Even though you're lost, lost in this great sea of sin, there is one who watches over you. He always knows those he has chosen and he has provided a lifeguard to rescue each one from this certain death into which they have fallen. My friends, there is hope. If you see yourself in this great sea, all alone and without hope, the good news is there is hope. And all you must do to take hold of that hope is to cry out and acknowledge your sin and your hopeless condition. Ask the Father. Ask him to send Jesus Christ to pull you out of this hopeless state and bring you to him where hope abounds. These verses are looking at the, at the at we're looking at this morning, verses 8 through 10, explained to us a great deal about this wonderful hope. The title of this message is Saved by Grace. Grace is the foundation of your hope. Without grace, hope does not exist. So let's examine these verses. First, we shall study the power of this grace. Second, we will look at some fallacies surrounding the idea of salvation by grace. Last, we will consider the expectation we should have as we're saved by grace. Salvation is a mystery. How it is a sinful man can be restored to fellowship with the holy God. Paul tells us in these verses just how this mystery is worked out. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, I told you a few weeks ago, verse 1 of chapter 2 was a definitive verse of Scripture. It says, and you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. This verse is definitive because it establishes the condition of all men before God and shows their need of his grace. Well, we can make the same claim for verse 8. It sets the foundation of our relationship with God. There's not another verse in Scripture that makes it quite as clear as this one. It begins with the phrase, for it is by grace. What is grace? Grace is a special blessing. It's not something you earn. It's not something that you can go out and purchase. Grace is given from the heart of one person to another without any thought of something in return. The Greek word used here for grace is charis. It's a special blessing given to undeserving people. So Paul is declaring that you have received an unmerited blessing from God. This would not be anything extraordinary except 
for the character of the one giving the blessing. Here, it's God and he is holy. He will not accept sin into his presence. For a sinful man to come into the presence of God is certain death. In verse 1, Paul makes clear, we were all lost in sin. We had all fallen overboard and there was no way we could rescue ourselves. But God planned before the foundation of this world to include the rescue of a people unto himself from this great and terrible sea of sin. How could God rescue us when we were in sin? How could he take hold of us and bring us out of that sin without destroying us? There had to be a way to change us so we could come into his presence. There, would, there had to be a way to deal with the sin, a way to make us righteous in his eyes. That way was grace. God sent Jesus Christ into this world as a man, as a perfect man, not one descended from Adam by ordinary generation, but one kin to us through his mother Mary. Jesus lived out for us the perfect life. He then offered that perfect life as a sacrifice before God for the sins of his people. His people were those chosen by God from before the creation of the world. They were a people wholly unworthy of God's grace, but chosen to receive it. This is explained in the second phrase of verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved. You were redeemed from this terrible state of sin and misery by a powerful act of God's grace, the sending of Jesus Christ. You did not deserve anything from God. You had no claim in and of yourself to God's grace. This grace comes from God, but there is a process established by God through which it must come. Paul says it comes through faith. Faith is a work. Does this mean we have a hand in earning God's grace? Romans 4.4. 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as duty. You don't think of your wages as a gift from your employer just because he has a heart for you. You look at them as something you earn by your hard work. Paul says in Romans 11.6, if your salvation is by grace, then it is no longer by works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. So even though we know faith is a work, we also understand that faith is not the agent of salvation. Grace is. Paul adds to our understanding with the next phrase, and that not of yourselves. You know grace by the very nature of what it is does not come from the one receiving it. In other words, you don't generate grace in yourself. That means he must be talking about something else that is not coming from you. The only other thing he has mentioned is faith. You're saved by grace, but there's a process, a process by which this is all played out in your life. That process, he declares, is faith. 1 John 6, 25 through 29, Jesus is talking with a group of Jewish people. They have just seen him feed the 5,000, and they have followed him hoping to receive some more free food. Jesus uses this as a teaching moment. He tells them about eternal life. They want all they can get, so they ask him, what are the works one must do to please God and receive the free bread of life? In verse 29, he tells them, 
This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. This is the work of God, to have faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot be saved unless you have faith in him. You must believe he is the one sent from the Father. No man will enter heaven that has not, in this life, exercised faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. He goes on to explain in verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Then in verse 17, he explains the plan. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The plan. The plan is to deliver through the preaching of God's word, the message of God's grace to all who will hear and believe on Jesus Christ, to all who will exercise faith. We have already said men are dead in their sins, so how are they going to hear unless they are made alive? God has promised to give his people new hearts to raise them from spiritual death to spiritual life. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Here's the change God will make in his people. Here's the grace, the removal of your heart of stone and the giving of a heart of flesh. With this new heart come two works, faith and repentance. With the gift of faith, you can now hear the message of hope. With the gift of repentance, you can turn, begin turning away from sin to live your life for Christ. Listen to Ephesians 2.8 again in its entirety. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. This faith is a gift from God. You were spiritually dead, you had no faith. God moved on your heart, he changed you from one with a cold stone heart to one with a living and active heart. He instilled in you a desire to hear this gospel message. He showed your rebellion in your hopeless condition. He showed you the life preserver right in front of you, Jesus Christ. Does the man in the sea praise himself for reaching out and taking hold of the life preserver that's thrown to him? No. He thanks the one who was predestined to give it to him. God knew you. He saved you. Your salvation was by grace, by unmerited favor given to an undeserving person. It came to you through the work of Jesus Christ, through faith. It was not by any of your own works or efforts. It was a powerful and free gift of a gracious and loving God. Let me ask you, have you taken advantage of that gift? Have you heard the call of Jesus Christ to change your ways? to turn from your sin and turn to him. That's what this is all about. It's about salvation, about your soul being saved. Open your heart to him this morning. I'm not going to ask you to do anything you can do, because that would be foolish. I'm asking you to do something you can't do unless God's working in your heart. And that's believing and trusting in Christ and in Christ alone.
Paul is not content just to tell you about the power of this grace. As wonderful as that power is, he wants you to know the pitfalls that can come within this mystery. Verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In the second commandment, we're told never to worship other gods because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God will not share his glory with anyone for any reason. Your salvation is by grace through faith, and it is in no way your own work. If you have, uh, have a hand in your own salvation, then you have a right to boast. But he clearly says here that you have no right to boast in any part of the process of salvation. You are totally trusting in Christ and in Christ alone. That's what salvation is. Satan is alive and well, and he has told many lies to try and get you to think you had a hand in your own salvation. He's very crafty and can make the lie sound better than the truth. Man by nature wants to think highly of himself. So the first thing Satan tries to tell people is that you really aren't so bad. You, you are a pretty good person. God will have to weigh your good against your bad. If your good outweighs your bad, then you're in. This leaves the power of salvation in your hands, not God's. It makes God your puppet, destroying the idea of his sovereignty. Another lie Satan tells concerning man's natural desire to be the one in control. He tells people that God has provided everything, everything you need to be saved. But the decision is yours. You can study the offer and accept or reject it. He also tells you there's no hurry. He says, hell is not really a bad place. After all, a whole bunch of your friends are there already. <laughs> he plays down judgment and the idea of consequences. One of his lies strikes directly at the concept of faith. He says, faith is inherently in all men. To be saved, they must activate their faith. God will see those who activate their faith and will make those his children. The whole fallacy of this is that the spark that causes salvation is found in man, not God. An old lie Satan has pushed in the past and continues to push in our day is what is known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism has many different twists to it, but to boil it down as simply as possible, it says there's a great difference between the material physical world and the spiritual world. It teaches you can live an ungodly life and still be a Christian because these two worlds are separated as to not influence each other. In other words, the flesh has no effect on the spirit. The spirit has no effect on the flesh. With that ultimately leads to is a false Christianity that believes in a great power. And that power is totally controlled by the few people who have enough faith to use it. It allows them to manipulate God, thus placing man in control of salvation and all of God's various powers. Paul in Galatians warns of these kinds of evil lies. The specific lie he speaks of is the lie that you can earn your salvation by keeping the law. Satan would have all men believe the power of salvation lies within them. He would tell you that there is a list of do's and don'ts 
And if you can be faithful to the keeping of those that list, you will be secure in heaven. Paul's already made it clear in this letter that salvation does not come from anything within man. For there is nothing in man that can please God. We're sinners. We sinned against God. We rebelled against God. We're in rebellion against him in our natural selves. You must understand here the concept of spiritual death. What Satan does not want you to see in first and second Corinthians 4 4 is that those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Satan is the father of lies. He is bound and determined to keep as many men as possible from seeing the truth. The simple truth he doesn't want you to see is that salvation is by grace, through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Satan knows that if you ever see yourself for the sinner you are and see the offer of God's grace, his time as your master is limited. You will be freed from his grasp, from the terrible bondage Satan has enslaved you in. Believe me. It is not because he's afraid of you and any power within you. No, it's because he knows the power of the Almighty God. Remember, Satan killed Christ. He buried him in a grave. He tried to wipe out his memory. Then he saw Christ's resurrection. He saw God's written word come to life. He saw the powerful effect it had in the lives of all who would hear and believe, and he knows. He knows the more that hear, the more that believe, the shorter his time is in this world. Please, hear this. Your salvation is exclusively the work of God the Father through his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. It is God who has called you. It is God who has given you a heart with which to hear. It is God who has provided the gift you need to respond. It is God who justified you and has given you a right standing before him through the works of Jesus Christ. It is God who adopted you and made you a part of his family. It is God who is changing you, molding you into the image of his son. And it is God who will glorify you as you are brought into his presence on that great day of judgment. I beg you, please, don't place any confidence in anything but Jesus Christ. You will not get into heaven unless you come completely trusting in Christ. You cannot have Christ and a few words with him. That won't get it. You cannot enter heaven with any extraneous works. The only work that matters is the work of God, which Christ said, is believing on him, and that work is given as a gift from God. It is not your own. And since it is a gift from God, it is not of works, lest anyone should boast. There will be no human boasting in heaven. All the praise and glory will be directed to God alone, for it is his work only that saves. Paul sees this truth of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as extremely important. He reiterates it in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Summed up in this statement 
is the great expectation we have in our hearts. He says, for we are his workmanship. We believers can never claim to be self-made. Who can claim they delivered themselves from their mother's womb? Would that not be somewhat of a foolish statement? Can an infant cut his own umbilical cord? Can he clean himself up and go out and find his own nourishment? No. Someone has to do all of that for him. That is, that, this is why salvation is likened unto a birth. Jesus says in John 3, 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is changed, unless he is given a new heart, unless he is given a new spirit, all of which is beyond his own ability. He cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot be saved. You as a believer in Jesus Christ, as the one of the elect, the redeemed, are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are made a new creation, a new work of God. You are now twice his workmanship. You were made a person in your first conception and birth. And you were made a child of the living God in your new conception and new birth. Paul explains this new birth. He says, you were created in Christ Jesus. This is exactly what Christ was saying in John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the wonder of the grace that has saved you. That grace was worked out to show you the power of God. God came down into his own creation to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He came as the only begotten son, taking on flesh and blood to be your kinsman redeemer. To fulfill all that was needed to restore you to the place for which you were created. How did he do this? How did he do all of this? By taking the curse of your sins upon himself and giving to you his own wonderful righteousness. Paul speaks of this in Colossians 3, verses 9 through 10. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created you. This renewal taking place is from God, not yourself. Your old nature is removed and your new nature is implanted and is being made to grow within your heart. You're being recreated in Christ. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. These things are the creating power of God at work in those he calls from the darkness into the light. Why does he call you? Paul tells us it is because we were created to do good works. To do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The question is, what are these good works? You remember we looked at John 6, 29, where Christ said the work of God was to believe on him. The first good work, the very first good work prepared in advance for you to do was to believe on Jesus Christ as the God-man. I want you to understand, 
It was not something in you that caused you to do this work. It was the giving of the new heart. You could never believe on Jesus without the new heart. The giving of the new heart was something God planned. When he did it, he planned it before the beginning of time. That gives me great comfort to know God had already planned this out. He was working in me before I ever knew about him. He chose who and when he would give the new heart. The work of salvation is the sole work of God. This is what Paul means when he says, you were saved by grace. Your salvation comes from the power of God to change hearts, to recreate. You are his workmanship. You are being recreated in the image of Jesus Christ. From the moment of your new birth, every good work you do was planned by God for you. It is his power at work through you that is accomplishing all things. But someone will say to me, the Bible teaches I am receiving crowns of glory. Yes, you do. But what is it you will do with those crowns as you come to heaven? What are you going to do with your crowns? We, we shall all do as the elders who are forever before God's throne and cast our crowns before him. Why? Because they're his. It was his power working in us that acquired those crowns. We have no right to boast in anything we have done, for it was all done by his power. Our response is to be one of great thanksgiving that the power of God's grace was bestowed on us even though we did not deserve it. What these verses should stir up in your heart is humility, praise, and joy. Humility that you, an unworthy creature, have been the recipient of such a great blessing of God's grace. Praise that your salvation is not dependent upon you nor your ability to keep the law. Rejoice that God is so gracious and loving as to redeem a sinner like you and give to you the gift of eternal life. If you have not received this gift, I know it can sound as though it's hopeless for you, but it's not in this case. God called all men to hear and believe. They call it, it, the call is universal. It goes out to everybody. Then what must you do? You must listen. You must hear and you must act on what you hear. If you will acknowledge your sin and the darkness of your heart, God will hear your cry and will save you from this terrible sea of sin. He will rescue you and give you a new heart and a new spirit. He will start remolding you and making you into a new creation, a creation that can come boldly into his presence, a creation that will be constantly engaged in the good works prepared in advance for you to do. Please, please don't put off this opportunity. Search your heart right now, this morning. Examine your life. And if you find yourself lost in this sea of sin, call out to God for help. For help can be found in him and in him alone. Let us pray. Father, we come to the end of this service not knowing what we should pray for. 
We call on your spirit to come and intercede for us, taking our meager efforts, searching our hearts and minds that he might speak for us. We know that in all good things you work for us because we love you. We know you called us according to your purpose. We know you knew us and predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of your son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He predestined us, called us, justified us, and will glorify us. We lift our voices in praise and thanksgiving for such love and grace. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.